Welcome back to another episode of I Am Teacher. I am Dan Clark, your host for this program. This is episode four of I Am Teacher. It's been a fun ride up until this point. I've learned a lot about recording, a lot about editing, and a lot about my coworkers. And I can't express how happy I am that other people have listened to this and found it entertaining in some way, helpful, educational. I'm just happy that people are getting something out of this. It's hard to look far into the future and think of what episode 120 will look like or if I'll even get to that point, but it's going to be a constant challenge to find more people to talk to, to find the time to edit these and put these out there. I'm reading constantly about how to do a podcast correctly. I'm reading about different seasons of podcasts, different methods of questioning, because not everybody does it the same. In this medium, a lot of people are kind of learning on the fly, which is also how teaching kind of works. So I'm thankful that you have chosen to access this podcast and listen and tell me that it's been helpful or educational in some way. So thank you. I really appreciate the fact that you take the time to listen to this. On that note, I'll give you a donation update. I have a very lofty goal of $20,000 and currently we are at the very bottom level. We currently have zero dollars towards that goal and that's okay. I get it. I'm not sure I am expecting to actually raise that much money, but I'm not taking the option off the table. The student loans I've accumulated over my time at school are a weight that many people feel, and I'm just trying to get creative when it comes to getting rid of it quicker. Because at this current rate, I will still be dealing with these student loans probably five years down the road. And I'd like to live in a world where those things are not taking my time and money. Hopefully, if you find this content worthwhile, you could drop a few bucks in the bucket. And you can do so by accessing my website, which is new. You could access this website through my Anchor page, or possibly even my iTunes page. Or you could just go to danielevanclark.wix.com site.com slash I am teacher. I'm trying to expand the number of channels that I am accessible on. And I figured having a website would be a place where I could have a central control for my GoFundMe page and my anchor page and my podcast news and information. So My theory behind it is the more places I am, the easier I am to access and the more people I am able to reach. So if you feel like it, check it out. 
donate or not. I'm also working on an Amazon affiliation where in the future you'll have a link that you can use when you buy things with Amazon and I get a little chunk of the proceeds, a small percentage of the price goes to I am teacher and goes towards getting rid of that student loan debt. I am teacher can be found on Instagram at I am teacher dot podcast. And I can be found on Twitter at underscore I am teacher underscore. I am just getting those accounts off the ground. So bear with me, but that will be other places where I push out. I'm not sure what this will all morph into. Maybe in the future it will all be abandoned and become a ghost site on the interwebs. Or it will become the birthplace of my empire. We shall see. Today's guest is middle school social studies teacher at St. Peter Middle School, Dustin Sharstrom. I've only talked with Dustin a few times. And in those few conversations, I always thought that he had something to say. So I figured who better to talk to than someone who's got something to say, especially in these early episodes. Dustin has been teaching for 12 years. He has not only taught in St. Peter, he's taught in the Nicollet County School District where he was the social studies teacher, meaning he taught all the grades at their middle and high school. He was the only social studies teacher in the building. We talk about that. We also talk about his experience fresh out the gates of teaching when he went to teach on the U.S.-Mexico border in Arizona. Like many of the previous podcasts, our conversation takes some twists and turns and we go off on tangents. But, so, sit back or keep multitasking and enjoy this episode and my conversation with Dustin Sharstrom here on I Am Teacher. How about Sky? Do you listen to any podcasts? Oh, God. God, I'm a podcast junkie. Okay. I was going to try identifying them, but I said that I actually need to look at my phone to see what's in the podcast area. You don't have any go-tos that you oh, like yeah. automatically download, or you just, do you look for specific guests? That's what oh, I'm no, doing. no, no. Like, I'm, like, I have some go-tos, but I listen to, sadly, that many podcasts. Really? Yeah. Like, so, how, like, number-wise? Like, more than 10? Um, it's entirely possible. Um... <laughs> Let's see, we're looking here, the Moth Radio Hour, Freakonomics, Mind Shift, Radio Lab, Crime Town, Stuff I Missed in History Class, yep. That's a good one. Um, Serial, S-Town, definitely not not a PG podcast there. And (laughs) yes, the Fantasy Footballers. Oh, great. How many of those? (laughs) Just one of those? That's just the, that's their name, the Fantasy Footballers. The Fantasy Footballers, and I'm definitely behind... On episodes, which that, I'm... That doesn't, that doesn't help to be like... I'm like one in four in both <laughs> leagues, and I... Yeah, listening to old podcasts of that probably isn't as helpful. Correct. You probably just skip over the ones you missed. Yeah, it's time to just move on with life. What, like, what are the lengths of... I know Serial's always talked about it. Like, that was always a good one. Um, but what, what's, like, the average length of those podcasts? Uh, 30 to 50 minutes. Okay. And I'll do the episodes while I'm in the garage at night, working on motorcycles, putzing. I'm not much of a TV guy. I have found that the more interested I get into other topics, 
that aren't on TV. I just have no need to watch it. We got TV just because I complained enough about not watching the Vikings games. And other than watching football, I haven't watched anything. Is it just on an individual basis that it's happening? Or do you think it's happening on a larger scale? No, I, th- I think that there's a complete shift in our in our programming. No longer do people feel they need to watch what the television station is telling you is on at a certain time. And our lives don't need to revolve around a show starting at 6 o'clock or 7 o'clock. We should be able to go to Netflix or Hulu or whatever it is and watch the show we want at the time we want or the quantity of shows we want. It's almost comical to think back to when you did have to do that. Like, it's on at 7 o'clock. I can't be doing anything at 7 o'clock. Dan, are you old enough to remember the TiVos? The TiVos, yes. Wasn't it TiVos that you could record? That was the the first advancement in, you know, digital recording. We used to have, my dad used (laughs) to do the old, I mean, we had, he, I mean, he was a social studies teacher from like 1978 on or something like that. And so we taped a lot of 60 Minutes or 48 Hours or, you know, History Channel specials, physically recording them. And you had to watch it Mm -hmm. while you recorded it. Like, you couldn't change the channel. Um, And I remember one speech I gave in high school, because I often would ask my dad for advice, like, what should I give a speech on? It was a how-to speech. He was like, how about we talk about how to program your VCR to record something. You know what I mean? Like where you could set it up where at 7 o'clock it would hit record, 8.05 mm-hmm. it would stop. That was my speech. Real originally thought out by me, right? Just ask my dad. Yeah. For well. But it's, it's, yeah, it's funny to watch, or not funny, but it's interesting to see all of that unfold. And then now it's coming to the point where TV isn't the primary form of entertainment people are accessing. To sit down and actually watch a television program, it's just mind-blowing to me that people still do it. And I was talking to my mother about watching some show on MSNBC, and I said, you know, you could just listen to a podcast and get your news in like 10 minutes and be done, if that's the amount of news you want. And that idea to her just seemed foreign. Yeah. My parents will still watch, like, religiously a show at a certain time. Like it's, you know... 1980. It's crazy. Yeah. But it's shifted to this strange place where people want to hear like two people having a conversation for a long period of time. The millions of people that listen to the super, like if you look at maybe like Mark Maron's podcast, that was kind of a big one when podcasting became popular. Mm -hmm. And it's just him talking to somebody for a couple of hours, and it's just, I don't know, I can't explain why I am so drawn to that, but it's super entertaining for me. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I have, during the summer when I'm doing yard work and when I have different things going on, like you would think I'm listening to music when I have the earbuds on, nine times out of ten, I'm geeking out to a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) And... But do you think you miss, like, is it hard to catch everything if you're doing two things at once, or do you? Um, I'll base my podcast based on the activity I'm doing and the level of attention I need to pay. Right. Like, there's there's podcasts that are lighter and that are designed to just make me laugh and chuckle, that if I miss parts of it, like, that's not a big deal. But then there's other ones where I am thinking critically and I need to use my, my brain sub- substantially more to process what's going on. Yeah, there's some difficult 
concepts people bring up sometimes that you need to stop. Like if you've ever found yourself doing the activity and then you're kind of, you end up just like standing there with the rake in your hand or something as you have to listen intensely and what they're saying. Well, I just call those breaks. (laughs) (laughs) I'm tired of shoveling right now. I'm just going to hold on to the shovel for a little bit, ponder my thoughts. Yeah, that's good. Have you ever been, have you ever done something like this? Like a pot, like actually recorded? Um, no. And I didn't even know you were recording me when we walked in. So, well, yeah, welcome. That's my natural introduction that I feel like I can get the most ease into the recording as possible. Have you gotten over 10 people to listen to your podcast yet? Yeah, we had, I mean, I sent this out to the entire staff. I don't know. I sent it out to the middle school staff too. Um, and I've had a couple hundred listens both podcasts so that's very shocking to me <laughs> and i hope it's be, i hope it's entertaining i hope it's worth listening to because happy you know personal opinion of yourself is always you are your own harshest critic so of course i think i sound like an idiot and whatever i'm talking about isn't interesting but then if i think about it from what i think is interesting or what i listen to those people probably think that that's not interesting either. Like, I listened to two people talk about how underrated Sam Rockwell was as an actor today. And they talked about that new movie coming out about Dick Cheney called Vice, and they were kind of just going over how awesome it looked. Like, I I, I guess if I was talking about the trailer of a movie, I wouldn't think that that's interesting. But as a listener, when I listen to somebody else talk about it, I find it interesting. So... I'm aware that I'm probably not the best judge of what I am saying is interesting or not. Yeah, well, I I think I was processing the same thing coming over. What in the world am I going to share that's intriguing or that someone's going to to tune in for for more than three minutes? I've convinced people will tune in long enough to, to get credit for viewing it, to make you feel better, to humor me, and then they won't listen to a single word. But I bet they, I'll bet there are more than you think that will listen to the whole thing and they'll find some gems in it that makes their day brighter or gives them something just to take away with that they can think about. So how, how many years have you been a teacher? This would be year 12, yes. How do you feel after 12 years? Do you feel like you have, you're still having a good time? Yeah, I mean, I still enjoy coming and teaching. Every day has different challenges. And every day you're learning more about how to teach. Like you don't feel like you ever truly master the craft because there's always different students or different challenges or new strategies to try. And that you always, at least I feel this way, I always feel like I'm not that good. And even though somebody will tell me like, oh, I loved your class and this was great. There's like a part of my brain that's like, I don't know. Well, the minute you have a lesson that goes well and you tell yourself, yeah, that lesson kicked butt. The following period, something's going to happen that didn't go as you planned, and you're going to beat yourself up about, why didn't I word that differently? Or how could I have explained it to get that kid to, to understand it better? How can I get this kid to at least try on the assignment? There's no blueprint to give us like a, a feel-good, that-a-boy success rate. There's always a new challenge. Yeah, and have you taught middle school your entire 12 years? No. So okay. my first five... I taught down on the U.S.-Mexico border. Um, I lived in Yuma, Arizona, and I taught in the Gadsden School District and then the Yuma Union High School District. So I did middle school and high school. Then when I came back to Minnesota, I was the one-person social studies department in Nicollet, and I taught 7th, 8th, 
9th, 10th, 11th, and 12th grade all at the same time. So I had six or seven different preps going on. In one, one day? day? Yes. So, <laughs> And then we went to like a, a, a modified block schedule. So it was like seven periods over two days. But from one hour to the next, I was teaching something completely different. And I could go from college level courses to seventh graders. And did you like that? Or was that a challenge? Was that an interesting challenge or one you preferred you would not have had to have dealt with? Because I'm sure you have found that that was helpful in some way. But was it, what did you think of while it was going on? It's a challenge, I mean, to be creative in what you're teaching and, and not become just a traditional by the textbook teacher becomes really hard when you have that many preps because you're thinking of seven different contents at any given time. I enjoyed it because I knew my students much better than I do in St. Peter because I had the kids year after year mm-hmm. versus I'm learning 90 to 100 new names right now. And I don't, I just, I don't know the kids' personalities like I did. And, and we're at the point of the year where they're probably starting to come out of their shell more. I think, I always thought when I taught middle school after maybe a quarter, they were willing to trust me a little more and be themselves and, you know, get where I'm coming from and listen to me more. Some are. I mean. Takes long. And then, but there were some students who would take almost the entire year and then in maybe April, all of a sudden it was just like they would burst out and be like, hey, here I am. Uh-huh. It's different for every kid. wonder what that is. Like, what is going through their head that whole first three quarters of the year? I don't know, but I mean, sometimes it happens. I have kids that are in their second year of having me that are just finally opening up to me. You had me all last year and never had a personal conversation. Year two, complete different story. <laughs> I would always try to make those things happen quicker, but is, I don't know, have you found any way to make it happen quicker, or is it just kind of, because I feel like if you force it, it just doesn't. I try. Right. I mean, I try to have conversations with kids that are willing to have conversations and make those personal connections, but there's some kids that are going to talk to you, and there's other kids where, oh my gosh, the creepy teacher is talking to me. It's, it's, you become like, creepy. Like, you get right? just the fact you're trying to reach out, they're like, who are you, and what are you doing? <laughs> Yeah, and they might find it awkward, but the best part I think I've found, or one of the best parts of teaching is I've found how to not let the situation determine my feelings. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't have awkward interactions with students anymore because I just don't let the awkward signal go off in my brain. You know what I mean? It may be awkward to them, but for me it's just like... uh, Another day as a yeah, teacher. I don't, it doesn't bother me in any way, shape, or form. And if they're awkward, um, I get do get a laugh. Seeing middle schoolers at the grocery store and out in town is the oddest experience for them because you'll get everything from like the kids who will wave to you three aisles away or like across the parking lot, yell your name, to the kids who will go so far out of their way to avoid even seeing you that they will dip behind aisles. And that doesn't even stop with middle schoolers either. Like high schoolers will. It's funny. They'll avoid you when, you, when you're out in public. And then when they see you again in school, they will say, oh, I saw you at Target. Did you see me? I, it's like. I've had that happen. And I've kind of joked with the kid like, dude, that's creepy, man. Like if you see me at Target, don't follow me around Target and look at what I'm shopping for. Like say hi appropriately. I think they feel like we're robots sometimes. And sleep in the classroom. 
don't forget about that. Like at night, we sleep in the classroom and we're waiting to grade their papers that they submit at 930 at night. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, of course. Always ready for that 930 submission or 1030. Yeah. So you said in your story, you went from Yuma, Arizona to Nicollet, Minnesota. To Nicollet, Minnesota to St. Peter. So Yuma, is it heavily urban area or what's like, what is the landscape of Yuma? Because if it's on, it's on the Mexico U.S. border, is it a big city-like atmosphere or Um, is it more of like a rural part of Arizona? No, I would compare Yuma itself, city is not that far off of Mankato. Okay. But then you have the, you have the city and then you also have the agriculture in that area. Outside of town is the lettuce and citrus fields that a lot of our major inventory that we get up here of produce during the winter comes from that area. So a large percentage of my kids worked in the agribusiness of some sort, either working in the fields or in some management capacity. I learned a lot more about different cultures and then about my own self and how to to reach other students who are different than I am by moving to Arizona and then coming back and working with a diverse culture back in St. Peter. And it's helped me grow. Like as much as the students down there were different, there were similarities and you had to learn how to reach each student and you had varying abilities. Right. So I, when, so I taught in the middle of Mexico for a school year. Yep. And what I found was that, yeah, the challenges are basically the same everywhere you're going to go. Like every kid in your classroom is going to be at a different level and a different, going at a different pace. And in general, kids are all kind of worried about similar things. Yeah, I mean, you have to identify that, that each kid is a unique learner. Like, that, that took me a while. Like, you have to modify your expectations and work with each kid in a way that's going to work for them. Right, and so how do, you, how do you think it's best to deal with that as a teacher of, like, 30 kids in a classroom or 90 kids in uh, a, an entire group or in, when you see 90 kids in a whole day, how do you take that individual ability into account? Because it's, impo- I mean, it's, it's improbable and kind of impossible to expect, you know, 90 different lessons for each kid, or is it? I would say it's kind of crazy. I, I mean, it's crazy to have multiple lessons going on at once, but I try having activities that allow multiple path, paths towards mastery, where if you're not able to obtain a certain path, that, that's fine you're still able to master at a level that's appropriate for you. And having those different paths doesn't mean you're going to have the end outcome project in some cases. So can you give me an example? Like, So would someone maybe not finish the end project and still be able to? Um, possibly, or the end project would be different, where the, the binder pages are different for the kids and the readings are different, and then what they produce for mastery is different in the end. And is that a lot? I mean... How much work on the front end is that for you? Does it happen as the lesson is progressing and you kind of identify, like, okay, this is getting a little bit difficult for you, so let's kind of focus you in this path, or is it already set? Like, I've already had these paths thought I, out, and here we go. This one, you're going to end up here. You'll probably be here. Sort of and sort of. Okay. Like, I, <laughs> I mean, I try to have the paths figured out. Um, But then you're going to run into maybe you had a path that a kid is doing far better than than you expected and you don't want them to be bored 
or you had a path that you thought would have made sense for a kid who, who's struggling a little bit more and they just they, they can't grasp it. So you're going to have to modify as you're teaching it. And so can you, can you, like, what's a good social studies example for that? Good social studies example. I mean, like, is there anything you're doing right now that matched, like, that would fit well, into that? We're starting, idea? right now we're looking at the Great Lakes, um, specifically for one of our geography units that correlates with the online textbook. And some kids are working on the basic, um, just identifying the lakes and labeling them and making sure that they can do a brochure or a flyer that shows the basic information of the lakes. Then some students are working on trying to find the history of pollution of the Great Lakes and what we did historically to the Great Lakes, and they're making brochures on that. And then I have a whole other tier of kids that have identified the issues of pollution, but they're coming up with modern-day solutions, and they're creating action plans right now. And they've and so you identified those groups ahead of time. Well, like we're doing the, the levels th- build upon each other. <clears throat> so once so you've they've, mastered- they've already complete the fir- the highest group has already completed the. The basics of location and... Yes, they, and they got the absolute, the relative location. They understand the five themes of geography and how it relates to the Great Lakes. So they've already mastered that. Then they move to the next level. And so do they, do they actually complete the activity or is it like you have like a, pre, a pre-test kind of situation? They, they, create, or they create a product and actually demonstrate that they're ready to move on. Okay. Whether that being the Cornell notes or whatever it happens to be. Okay, and has that been, have you been doing that for a long time, or is this something you've started doing more recently? Um, I've gotten better about it over the last probably two years. I didn't differentiate as much as I probably should have in Nicollet, and it was more so because I don't think I was very good at it. Yeah, I feel like I struggle with that sometimes, where I'm making my differentiation as, like, on the fly. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't think that's, I think that's okay, but it's not ideal. I, like I'm coming up with like, okay, so you're here. I'm going to, uh, this, you like, you kind of come up with something improv, improvisationally. There we go. Is that right? I don't know. Is that a word? Sure. (laughs) Improv style. Fair enough. Differentiation. We'll call it that. And I was, I always did that, but I didn't plan out my differentiation in advance. And what do you think, like, what was stopping you? Because was it just time? Was it just the switching up of all the curriculum you had to be in charge of that stopped you from sitting down and figuring out, like, here's a path, here's a path, here's a path, and doing that for all your units? I think it's just like any skill you work on. When you get better at it, it almost slows down in your brain, whether that be a sport or an activity or uh, any skill for that matter. When... I was teaching so many different subjects. I had to always process what I was teaching. What was the best content? What did I need the kids to know for the test? So after going from seven preps in a day to two, I can process what I'm teaching in a shorter amount of time and then focus more of my prep time on how I'm going to teach it. So it's not as much the what I'm teaching, it's the how I'm teaching that I'm spending the majority of my prep time on now. Yeah, it's a... It's like a completely different gear you're and, in. And I had also taught 7th and 8th grade standards in Nicollet for five years prior to coming here. So, so you, this is my seventh year teaching the content. And that's probably a big part of it, too. Like, you, if you have that content mastery, you can, you know, start to toy with that stuff. Correct. Like, the state standards, like, I know what topics are in the standards. 
generally off the top of my head. I don't remember the numbers, but the fact that I know sequential what comes next in the standards makes it a lot easier. So now that you have had seven to eight years with this same, I mean mixed a little bit, but the same content area, do you ever feel like you'll want to shake it up with content areas? Or how do you feel about being in that same content area for the rest of your career? Does that well, I'm the next Eric Bo. I mean, <laughs> I got I to life it up at the middle school. But doesn't that, I, that, that scares me to think that I will have to teach this same information for the next, I don't know, 30 years. Um, How do I you don't know. I mean, that? I haven't processed, I mean, where I want to be long-term teaching. Do I miss teaching high school classes? Yeah. I mean, that was a huge perk of being in Nicollet is one period would be seventh grade and then you could have 11th and 12th graders the following period and a lot of variety in what you taught I mean that was the positive side of teaching that many subjects you never were able to get bored right and do you do you feel good do you feel yourself getting bored ever with the current like this the seventh and eighth grade curriculum that you've taught now for the 10th or eighth year in a row no we mix it up enough where I'm not bored at this point but we'll see in five six years if that's still the case Right. Yeah, I just, I just, I grew up with a teacher for a father, so I just saw him teach the same thing. I, I corrected the same papers of his every year, you know, 8 to 12 years old. And I didn't think about it then, but as I think about it now, I wonder what it was like as he got into year 20 of teaching the same stuff. Well, technology has changed that because you used to have to buy your workbooks and your packages of resources so it wasn't practical to change as much as we change now i mean we use the the shared google folders where all the teachers are sharing and i mean i still have some of the stuff when you were teaching the geography in that folder and some has been modified changed tweaked and added to so i mean to have a different worksheet or a different activity than was used the year before isn't as difficult no they had their own filing cabinets of Correct. Worksheets of transparencies of VHS tapes. Did you ever use an overhead projector? No. In your teaching career, never? Nope. They put one in my room, and they my first year teaching, and they had these mandatory worksheets. And I kind of broke the bulb the first week. And then I just never said a word about it, and I never had to use it for the rest of my teaching career. <laughs> that, was the, that was the last year of existence for the overhead the, projector. I'm left-handed. Me too. So everything hey. you write smears across those sheets. You're a fellow left-handed writer. Wow. Good to meet you. Yeah. There's not too many. And my, my hand's not even blue from the whiteboard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, like I look, I'm looking at my planner right now, and I open mine from the back so that I don't, you know, have my hand on the spiral. I As a kid, you don't think about that. You're just like, wow, this... Is really uncomfortable to write in this notebook. Must be normal. We're forced to suffer. But nobody's like, oh, it's because you're left-handed. And I was too stupid to realize that everybody else, of course, is not experiencing the same thing I am. And people, some student told me today how weird I looked when I wrote. And I was like, that's that's how I, that's, that's me. That's how I write. I've been doing it forever. It's not weird. You're weird. <laughs> um, so you're a fellow social studies teacher. Guilty. What draws you into this content area or what drew you in in the first place um well unlike you who got grew up as a teacher's kid 
I did not know what I wanted to do when I got done with school. I didn't even decide to go to college until like a week before college started. And then your only option is community college. And then after my first year of college, I decided not to go back and took a few years off. And then when I came back, I had gravitated towards a lot of history classes. And I just was naturally interested in the subject area. And so I kept realizing that when I had the choice to choose a class as an elective, it just happened to be history classes throughout my schooling. What do you find so interesting about history? Just... Because what, what, like what I find, or what I found is just the stories of history really fascinate me and the, the connections between something that seems unrelated to one event, that, but you can find a connection to it, really gets me excited. Yeah, well, the more you find out about the past and what's going on in the world, the more things make sense. Everything from lyrics to songs to movies and different topics, like it all starts to click. And I didn't realize how, I want to say naive I was to the world, but I just, as I learned more, I realized that there's a lot more to figure out about the world. And by studying history and different social sciences, that that's where I got that knowledge. And it's almost like the, the knowledge is endless too with history. Because mm-hmm. even though it's a finite set of time, there is so much in so many nooks and crannies that you can get sucked into. Yeah, history teachers aren't always the best conversationalists because some of the things that we think are interesting are just not to others. Have you, what, like, give me an example of one time you brought something up and it was just fall flat and the person was just, I'm gonna go. My wife is really good at humoring me, but when push comes to shove, hearing about history ranks up there with hearing about my fantasy football team. (laughs) <laughs> I'm not going to lie, she humors me well, but not intrigued. Just nods of the head and, hmm, okay, wow, that's interesting. Those kind of, those kind yeah. of responses. <laughs> what, what is your favorite, like, what is your, so history must, history is your thing. Yes. That was your, that was your focus. What, uh, any specific part of the world or era or country that really got you Um, I'm not going to lie, and this is really going to be something only a history geek can go into. Like, I can go into details of the different fighting factions within the political movement of the early 1900s in Russia. (laughs) Like, nobody else in this world cares about the Bolsheviks and what was happening in Russia in 1918. I assure you, I can... I don't think I could get a single person to talk to me about that topic except a history teacher. Yeah, and even depending on the history teacher you got, like I would, I have very surface knowledge of that. But what, it's crazy to, like, I'm, so I'm picturing you like browsing through stuff and all of a sudden this topic just clicks for you. inner workings of the political backstabbing of Lenin and Trotsky and like the rise of Stalin, like even to a fellow history teacher, that's not that intriguing i mean there's a lot it's, it is intriguing like the soap i always tell my students how much of history is just basically a soap opera mm-hmm. and you know characters die off they come back from dead there's backstabbing there's cousins marrying uh, each Rasputin, other come on <laughs> but so it's for like my favorite russian kind of 
story of friendship and betrayal was the Lenin Trotsky thing. Mm-hmm. Like, weren't they? They were really close, right? They were the yeah. one and two. One and two. And then after the victory, like, fast forward far enough, and Trotsky's got a bullet yep. in his head. Yep. Because of Lenin ordering it. Well, and, and right? It, yeah. I mean, you have that one, and I think another topic of just the drama it, that's kind of fun to teach kids is all of the crap that went on that led to World War One. It is one of the few wars in the world that you cannot concretely say one thing caused it or it was a clear cause. It is this layered soap opera drama between different factions of the world that turned into one of the deadliest wars the planet had seen. Has seen. I mean, it, the simple answer is Franz Ferdinand was assassinated. Right. However, there's been thousands of leaders assassinated throughout history that have not led to world wars. Right. Like, there's, there's leaders of countries of the leader of Austria, and he wasn't even the leader. He was the Archduke. He was the heir to the throne, was killed. And then you have countries from all over the world that had nothing to do with Austrian politics fighting each other. Have you ever heard of Hardcore History before? By Dan Carlin, of course. Oh, and have you listened to a Blueprint to Armageddon, I think it's called? Yep. The, the World War I. Uh-huh. Hours and hours of information podcast so you need to do this at the high school level because i can't at the junior high level uh, middle school level um for world history i have a detailed game that you play of the treaty of versailles where one-third of your class is the u.s one-third is britain and one-third is france and there is a numeric point given to every term within the treaty and they're fighting to get like the different terms met it is the end of the game. <laughs> so let's say let's say that my favorite part of that after World War One is so let's say all that hard work is done, all the points. Let's say the US wins with all the points. <laughs> my favorite part is like you go back like in so in history when when Woodrow Wilson has uh, you know the fourteen points plan, he's like, I did all this, like yes. Everybody here, we're good. This is okay. Taking this back home, piece of cake. All right, guys. Congress says no. Yeah, they <laughs> deny them, and they say your treaty is, you know. Well, that's the game. Sucks. Like, so the U.S. has to get, like, the U.S. side has to get the fourteen points approved. Like, that's the only way they can win, and the only way that um, France can win is if they get the war guilt clause. <laughs> and you you get like kids arguing over like the disarmament of the Rhineland and like the the Sudetenland and this. And students would be graduating from high school, and they could still remember the stupid issues they were arguing over. Remember that time we argued about the Sudetenland? <laughs> yeah, like, like, Hilarious. I'm sorry. War guilt clause almost caused a fight. <laughs> no joke, we actually almost had fists thrown, like punches thrown over the war guilt clause. And this, so when you, did you make this game? It is modified from something I had found years ago. Okay, and so what I love about those cool activities and games that you create is sometimes when you find them or modify them you're not even picturing like you don't even like you don't know what to expect that first time when you unroll that and you're like i don't know how this is gonna go uh-huh. this is an intense game like this has some complex rules to it and then that first time when it just goes off without a hitch it's just magical yeah so i mean when you have moments like that and you know it's good learning like that's rewarding as a teacher. I agree. Um, 
what was it? Was it a class that got you interested in that Russian politics topic, or was it just a click of a link or a fall down a Wikipedia black hole? I have no idea. Truthfully, like, <laughs> I don't even know if any of my college, gosh, if my college history instructor, who I have since become friends with, happens to hear this, I can't even say that he even talked about this topic in his Western stuff. And where did you where did you go to college? I went, so I started at Ridgewater. Okay. As we call Harvard on the Hill. <laughs> so I did a couple of years at community college. I had a short stint at the U of M that didn't finish with anything other than a few credits. Then I went to Winona State for my under to finish out my undergraduate. I did that in mass communications. I have a PR degree. All right, that's what I was. Never for that. used any of it in my adult career. Never recorded a broadcast till now. Wow. But I had a minor in history, so I went right after my undergraduate to graduate school and got a master's degree in academic instruction from St. Mary's University. Okay, and that was your path to teaching. Yeah. Then they gave you that multiple choice test to be a teacher, and there you go. The rest is history, right? Got out of graduate school, got offered a job down in San Luis, Arizona. And my wife and I, girlfriend at that time, packed two cars up and moved across the country. With a thousand bucks my dad gave me. That's all I had to my name. Was that feeling super exciting? Because I can remember going to Mexico and I felt like I was some kind of cowboy trailblazer (laughs) heading out and like, I'm going to conquer the world. Well. Or was it just like, oh golly, here we go. I don't really know if, I had no clue what I was getting into. It was a job, they were going to pay me, and I was going to be a teacher, so I took it. Did it feel like you were saving the world by doing what you were doing, or were you just trying to survive? Is that the I feeling? Like, can you remember, the, can you take yourself back to those moments? So I'm, I often think back to my first year of teaching, and I'm like, well, I had to be just awful. Like, if I were a fly on the wall, like, I had to have just sucked. <laughs> like, there's no way what I was doing was going to be effective. But then I processed, like, I did actually get for, um, like, Yuma County in that area. Like, I did win first year teacher of the year. I'm like, well, how? Truthfully, like, w- w- was everyone that bad? Because <laughs> I, th- I look at some of my lesson plans from that time period of my teaching, and, and I'm almost embarrassed that I thought that would work. It's just cringe-worthy, all that stuff, right? You just, you look back, you're like, ah. Oh. What were you thinking? Correct. Like, how many days I went home from work and thought, like, I just planned that whole lesson, and that was the worst day of my life. <laughs> and then and then two weeks later, you have the next worst day of your life teaching. It's the only career that you can consistently one-up yourself on doing worse in your own assessment of your teaching. I feel like stand-up comedy is similar, though. If you look at stand-up comedians, when they start, they start, like, as open micers, and they're terrible for a very long time. There's, their time period of being terrible is maybe 10 years, I think, before they actually think that they're any good. So, probably, but I remember, and I'm sure you did this too, creating the perfect PowerPoint and nitpicking (laughs) over what's going on the slide and, like, how many words and how many pictures, and you'd spend all this time making sure you had the perfect PowerPoint presentation, and then you'd go up there and lecture, and all of your effort was put into what you were teaching. I'm not going to lie, I use SlideShare a lot now and just delete the slides I don't want and focus in on what I'm going to say and how I'm going to like convey that information to the kids. Yeah, I have tried to turn my presentations into almost animated storytelling sessions because I teach U.S. history. Mm-hmm. And that's there's plenty of great 
stories within that content area that can help you really unpack a lot of ideas and explain some stuff. So I rely very little on that, what I used to consider the perfect mm -hmm. presentation. Like, well, if they write this down, then they'll, they'll have it, they'll know it. Yeah. As you have taught for 12 years, are there things that consistently happen, no matter what district you go to, that you think should be changed? Like that is consistently a problem everywhere you've been that you think there are some tweaks or some strings we could pull to make it better. Well, before I go into a serious one, I think I need to, to, to date myself in, the, in my movie knowledge and go with one that is a real problem. Anytime I'm feeling, feeling the blues about work, I need to watch the movie Office Space. There has never been a printer or copier at any school I've worked at that has ever worked as it's supposed to, <laughs> nor been maintained to the appropriate level, nor actually processed it and printed as it was supposed to, and there's always a paper jam. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not joking. Like, I have never had a copier that consistently worked, whether it's been a brand new copier, the oldest junkie copier. Every week I'm pulling paper jams. No matter where you go. No matter where I go. Real world problems. <laughs> they even had a, a they had a device at... My first high or first high school, junior high, it was called a Gestetner, and you had to screw in a ink drum, and every department got one ink drum per year, and you had to unscrew it each time. And, and take it, it with would, you, like, and it, yeah, and it would, it would like burp or explode. And at least once every few weeks, you'd see a teacher walking down the hallway covered from head to toe in ink. <laughs> wow, that's crazy to think that nobody could get that right. Or maybe that's a sign that we all print too much. I don't know. Or maybe Xerox is just... Or that, every, or that every school is trying to go years past the printer's prime or trying to put, like, a whole school on one printer. Yeah. There's some private school that's probably doing it right. But, I mean, I joke about that one, but speaking serious about it is we live in the era of test scores. Whether we like it or not as schools is our test scores are public. And the challenge of how to reach kids and how to obtain test scores that reflect learning and how to teach to the, those scores, to improve those scores, that's always been a conversation at every campus I've taught at. And, and I don't think there is a clear answer or even an agreed upon answer. I think the agreed upon data, I guess, that I've seen is that out of all those years when uh, since they've started tracking these test scores, the numbers, the needle hasn't really moved, right? Is that, am I crazy to think that i feel like i've heard that before like i mean no matter what we've tried or the tests we've tried to administer to, to or the, the strategies we've tried to to match the test material it hasn't moved the score up a significant amount or it, this the score hasn't gone down a significant amount well it's been i mean they've it's kind of been a moving target because the tests have changed the score data is Data has changed, and obviously, like, there, that idea that we had with No Child Left Behind that you would work towards 100% proficiency, that, like, any person with common sense knew that that was not going to happen. And it got to be where the gains they were asking you to make were just stupid in the terms of numbers. And Minnesota was exempt from that. However, I was teaching in Arizona, which was not, because our test scores were below that national mark where we needed to show progress. Um, they called it the AYP, what it there was an acronym for it of the annual progress progress goal. And we knew exactly what it was. And we had to freak out every year if we were going to make it because they put a banner outside our school with your, 
label of your school. Like a letter grade, right? Or is it? It a... was a, a performing, performing plus. There was a failing grade. <laughs> like, and that banner was what you saw every day when you walked into your school. Like, how demoralizing for a teacher and a student to walk into. Like, if you're, we're a performing minus school, or we're a, we're a. How did they think that was a good idea? That's such a terrible thing to like, do. I, it would go right over like the, the name of the school. Every day when I walked in, that's what I saw. That's crazy. And the first year I was at the school, we were labeled as a failing school. Was there just a big F on the school? It wasn't a letter grade, but they had a, like a name that went with it. Like, <laughs> they couldn't just put an F as an F. Like it was. That's like a dystopian future type thing. Yeah, and grade, so the... <laughs> putting the grade level of like school on the outside I can't even go one step further like they, they sent people in from the state mm-hmm. to talk about like why the school was not doing so well and I got interviewed and I remember saying well these are test scores from last year I, I, I didn't even work here I don't I don't know what you want me to say like I have absolutely no idea what happened in the school last year I lived in Minnesota right okay question number three yes um, and then they just kept going probably with it right does so, they even acknowledge you? Said that? I don't remember the, the conversation itself, but I mean, it's not as bad in Minnesota when we do talk about test scores, but do we have to have those honest conversations about like how well we did and, and are our test scores put in the newspaper? Yeah, they are. So do you think the change would be just to scrap all of them? I'd be okay with that. Well, we're, we're in a perfect world because the Minnesota legis- legislature made it clear there can be no more tests. And there is no social studies test currently. So there is the civics test. There is, but there's no more. So for U.S. history, we don't have to worry about there being a test. So I think we're okay right now. <laughs> social studies always kind of we got the good end of the deal there, good end of the bargain always with those state tests. That's think, because they couldn't get anyone together to actually write the test. Is the real issue. How about what time is it? Four twenty-one. Okay, we got a little bit of time left. How long do you have to, how long can you stay here till? I don't know. I didn't make arrangements. I don't know if I okay. need to go cook. That's fine. I do um, need to go be a dad here. Yeah. Oh, that's a good. That's what I was going to bring up. So, you are the father of two children. Uh huh. Father of one child. Do you and did you have those children as you were beco- as you were starting your teaching career? We had Iris when we were in Arizona, and that would have been. We'd been there a few years, and we had bought a house, and we didn't have any real plans of coming back home. But then when you have a kid, and you're all the way across the country from grandparents and all of your family, like for your grandparents to see your kids twice a year, that's that's not what we wanted. Right. But being a father, as you're making those first years in teaching happen, did that affect how you taught? Or did it have any, did it change you in any way? I was pretty (laughs) sleep deprived. (laughs) I mean, I probably gave some loopy lectures. Loopy lectures that didn't make sense, and the kids thought I was even more crazy than I obviously am. Yeah, no. I think as I've worked with kids throughout the years, and then having my own daughter has been eye opening of the fact of some of the, the challenges that girls face within any society and ed- any educational setting and I do think having a daughter and thinking in terms of like I have this little human being I'm caring for that that's female allowed me to be more conscious of working with different genders within the classroom. I think that 
being a father or being a parent is beneficial to teaching because it gives you that perspective. Maybe it's of a different gender or of just the perspective of a kid. Um, and then the opposite is true. I think that being a teacher also is very beneficial to you as a parent because you know that kids are always pushing and they're trying to assert control based on mm-hmm. their behavior and you know that you can't you can't give in to that stuff. And you know that they'll also be fine if you don't give in. Like, just fast forward a little bit, they'll be over it. Yes, but in the heat of the moment. I also, my wife works as a nurse, and she does overnights. So bedtime, she's not there for. And so it's me putting the jams on and, and getting them ready for bed and making sure they stay in bed and just go to sleep. And then in the morning getting ready, it's like a gong show at our house when... And the meltdowns over, like, what clothes you're going to wear, ponytails. I'm not going to wear my jacket. I'm going to wear this. I, The stress level that, that is going through the child's mind is, is real in the moment. But to us, it's almost laughable. Like, it's just a pony. Get over it. Do you think being a teacher helps you diffuse that situation better or just be more patient in that moment? Because I'll just, if I have a moment like that, I'll just tap into my teacher patient's brain and kind of let the situation happen and then i try i mean right it's never i think think the the teacher side of me is also just as critical in my own parenting of i'm reflective of like how i handle things how i could do it better in processing oh well that was a really terrible response as a parent like i could do better than that do you think other parents other parents are unable to feel that perspective or take that perspective and no I, i think they are i think it's part of who you are as a person and how your brain processes. I do think like as a profession, like with teachers, we're forced to in all of our education programs and then in every professional development, in every evaluation, reflect, reflect, reflect. That is drilled in our head. I can think back of my own schooling and every formal observation I've had, I've had to write a reflection. Every course I've taken since getting my degree reflect on this and I have become somewhat reflective in my own processing and I just I just can't turn that off I that makes total sense like I feel like I walk behind myself and figuratively kick myself in the butt all day long of why didn't you do this this way <laughs> like, like I have a figurative boot <laughs> kicking myself in the rear end like all day long being like that was a stupid way to word that oh that was really selfish of you oh why didn't you explain it this way to the class and that you think oh. that, that's got to be a benefit, though, right? Like that's kind of like a. Well, yeah, I have great conversations with myself in my own brain. <laughs> like, I'll be honest; like, there's a lot going on up there. Yeah, I mean, being yeah, being a parent and a teacher, all together, it's kind of hard to separate them sometimes. Um, so, if you had to give a student, or your students, or people in general, or parents of your students, a piece of advice that they actually were able to download in their brain forever and make a part of their programming what do you think you would you would tell them i guess i would like to see i mean if there's one thing i would like to see every kid coming out of my class with and every parent or any person for that matter is the curiosity to learn more about things they're exposed to and to try figuring out more about the past or any topic that that's going on um whether that be political issues of the day whether that be looking at a scientific topic like, be curious and then strive towards learning about that curiosity. 
Like dig deeper. Yeah, dig deeper. Like don't just click share for the most surfacey meme humanly possible on Facebook or the like actually figure out about that issue and have some depth to your understanding. I feel like that is going on right now in our society the same time that like the podcast revolution is going on as well. So do you feel that way as well? That there's part of the population that's only doing the surface learning or the surface clicking um, and then there's a part of society that's diving into, you know, three-hour-long podcasts about Genghis Khan. Do you feel like that's a, a reality, or is that just a... I think it's different types of thinking, because I know a lot of people that will do the, the surfacey clicking and, and sharing that also do have very deep understandings of specific topics. I just wish people would use that level of processing and researching into any topic that they're interested in. Give, yeah, let them know what Snopes.com is. And eliminate the share button on Facebook entirely. Just eliminate it for a while. Let people actually type their own responses or, or their own memes. Like, if you want to share a cute, funny meme, type it yourself. Show some creativity. <laughs> Come on, you have it. You can do it. Oh, like, man. That, that, there would be a riot in the streets. Trust me, no, Ab- Abraham Lincoln didn't say any of those things on the memes being shared. <laughs> yeah, very true. Um, okay, man. I, I don't know. I think I got into kind of all the stuff I wanted to. Perfect. Um, so now we're at the end. So now would be the time to say something ridiculous to see if anyone actually listened like till the what, end. Like of what it. kind of ridiculous thing? Like a just a random word or a random word. Or a specific fact about the um, backstab- political backstabbings of the Russian what, <laughs> political parties of the 1900s, early 1900s. All right. Any person who can come up to me and tell me how Rasputin died will get a <laughs> prize of some sort. I will stock my, my, my teacher candy drawer with like a good chocolates or something of that sort. If you can come up to me and tell me how Rasputin died... Out of the blue. So you can't, you have to just come up to me and just say. That's the first thing you say. Rasputin died because blank. Or not even that. That's like, that's like a it, thesis statement answer. Just come up and say, just jump right to the blank, you know? True. And I'm not even telling you why, how Rasputin died. So you not only have to listen to this, you have to Google it. You have to follow <laughs> your advice of getting beyond the surface you click. Correct. And dive into the learning of Rasputin's last day. Oh, man, that's a good story, too. And any person who's not affiliated with the schools that listens to this, I will buy them a soda. I'll put it that way. There you go. Because I'm going to guess the only person who will make it this far is my mother. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. I, mean, I think I think uh, you'll be surprised. Um, I wonder if any middle school students, they probably won't listen to this, would they? They'd get bored by now. Yeah. Well, high school students listen to this all the way through. So they tell you. I, they ask me when the next one's coming out. I don't know. I because they know it. it makes you feel better. You think so? I don't know. I believe them. But tell me as well, if you're listening. Well, we'll find school. out. I'll we'll find be, out. Yeah. I will be the Rasputin man. So yeah. I'm going to say that Mr. Clark has to stock his candy. And all you need to do is walk up to him and tell him how Rasputin died and you get candy. Great. This is going to be a, a wonderful experiment. I, I'm, I'm good at spending your money. <laughs> Thank you, Dustin. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks, Dan. Yeah. And there it is, the fourth episode of I Am Teacher. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to reach out to Dustin Sharstrom to possibly tell him 
the answer to his Rasputin question, you can email him at dsharstrom at stpeterschools.org or you could find him on Twitter at dsharstrom. But please, don't let me down. Let him know how Rasputin bit the dust and that you are listening. If you'd like to rate, comment, and or subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, I would be very happy if you did so. If you're looking to access this podcast online, you can reach my anchor site at anchor.fm slash teacher. You can email me at danielevanclark at gmail.com. You can find me on Instagram at imteacher.podcast. And I'm on Twitter at underscore imteacher underscore. My central hub can be found at danielevanclark.wixsite.com slash imteacher. You'll find all links for the podcast there, along with access to my GoFundMe account, where you can donate to support this podcast and to help me get rid of these saddlebags of student loan debt that I still carry around seven years after graduating. This podcast will be published bi-weekly, so if you're looking for new episodes, every two weeks is what bi-weekly means. And thanks once again for listening all the way to the end of this podcast. I appreciate you. This is I Am Teacher.